Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. It took us 10 weeks to get through the first two chapters of Philippians. Woohoo! But there's only two left, so only 10 more to go. I'm just kidding. We're going to we're going to get through more than half of the third chapter and there's only four in Philippians, so we're going to make up a whole bunch of ground here. And um so I want to um jump right in because there's three things I want to bring to our attention here tonight that I feel during my study that the Lord's kind of highlighted for us here. So we're going to uh, read, I'll read out loud. You can follow along in your notes, Philippians chapter three, verse one. <clears throat> and it says this, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Letter A in your notes, how to safeguard our faith, how to safeguard our faith. Now, I don't know if any of you have children in here or grandkids, or if you remember being a child, uh, if it, for some of you it was a long time ago, um, but I'm, bam, um, I'm on a roll, man. I got to clear my head up here, right? <laughs> She's like, yeah, yeah, stop it, get it up. Um, uh, but you ever told a child, hey, don't touch the stove? And they kind of like, okay, they go away. And then like five seconds later, kind of walk around the, the back end. They come around and we're going to go, don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. And you keep telling them the same thing over and over and over again. Why? Because you want them to grasp the concept. Here, Paul is saying, I never get tired of telling you these things. He has just been uh, uh, showcasing his, uh, in the last chapter that we came out of, he's showcasing his friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's talking about the commitment to the gospel. He's, um, he's uh, just constantly reminding people to push off the old and embrace the, the freedom that Christ gives. And so when I, when I read this, I said, okay, well, he's obviously about to repeat something here. I never get tired of telling you these things. Okay, so I need to prepare myself for something else that's coming that I've heard before. And then he said, I do this to safeguard your faith. Now, when I, see, when I hear certain words like safeguard, I have mental pictures that come in. And for me, the mental picture for this safeguard was kind of like a, a, a park bench that was painted. And there's like a little rope in front of it with a little sign that says wet paint, like safeguard, don't touch it. You know, just leave it alone. Just it'll be fine. Just walk around and go find another bench, right? Um, and when I when I'm looking at it like that, when I see the word safeguard, it kind of appears a little flimsy to me. Like it's oh, well, I just need to kind of just protect it a little bit and just kind of keep it in place, and nobody touch it, and everything will be fine. But as I got into my study, this word safeguard doesn't mean that at all. And I put it in your notes here. It's got three implications, and the original the original word, which I can't pronounce. Um, is I put in parentheses, therefore, in your notes. Um, but it has these three implications, and it's this, firm, that which can be relied upon. The next one, certain and true, and the third one is suited to confirm. So let's keep going. The next line on your notes. The repetition found in Scripture is to confirm with certainty that our faith is true and can be relied upon. If you take the definition of what of that of that word safeguard and plug it into the scripture, that's what you have. The repetition found in scripture is to confirm with certainty that our faith is true and can be relied upon. 
when I saw that definition of safeguard, it no it transformed from the park bench with the little sign that said wet paint into a massive pouring of concrete, a massive foundation. This is not just to, to, to keep people from touching our faith or pe- keep people from questioning our faith or keep people from interacting with us. Just wet paint, don't step over here. Christian, don't step over here. No, this is safeguarding, pouring a firm foundation for us to stand upon and rely upon in needs when we need our faith to stand upon. You do not have a faith that um, cannot be questioned by people who are not believers. You don't have a faith that can be picked apart um, by uh, internet experts. You don't have a faith that can be picked apart by people who are cynics and doubters. You have a faith that is solid and can be relied upon. If there is a problem in your life, you can run under your God and he can protect you. If there is something shaking your world. You can stand on his foundation. That's the point of Roots Community Church, is to grow your roots so deep into a relationship with God that when everything else shakes, you don't. And the only thing that happens is some branches move around. But the roots and the foundation is so secure, it is a safeguard and is your safeguard for everything that you face in your life. This becomes not a flimsy little thing like stay away from me, like that guy who was in COVID running down the, the, the road that had those, those big six foot like blow up things on his head and his waist, you know, like this is six foot, don't touch because this is my six foot perimeter and he's jogging, it's dumb. But if you're watching, I'm sorry, sir, but that was a bad idea. Um, but he, uh, <laughs> uh, he may not watch, he might, hey. Um, but that is this, that's not what I'm talking about, some little flimsy thing. It is a solid foundation that we can stand on. We could say amen and wrap it up right there and chew on that the rest of the week because that changes everything. That was written 1,900 years ago. I'm telling you again, I'm telling you again, I'm repeating these things over and over to you. And if you read through some of other, uh, Paul's other letters to Thessalonians and to, and to the Corinthians and to the, the, the other places in the New Testament, you will find some of these things are repeated over and over again, just said a different way. And that is to safeguard, to strengthen, to remind us to build our faith. 1,900 years ago, they knew that was true. And today with all of our technology, and our research of psychiatric and psychological conditions, what we found is something uh, that it's true. Go figure. So next on your notes, Harvard University patented the spaced education, not space like NASA, but spaced, S-P-A-C-E-D, spaced education learning method in 2006. The method was originally developed by a medical professional, B. Price Kerfoot, that poor kid, he got picked on in school so much with that name, I'm sure of it. B. Price Kerfoot. But here's what B. Price Kerfoot said. With the spacing effect, if you take information in small amounts and repeat it, take information in small amounts and repeat it, it encodes that information in your memory. Do you see what's happening? Paul is reminding you over and over again. We're reading some of the similar concepts in scriptures presented to us a different way. What's happening when we grab those things and we think about them and we hear them over and over, it becomes embedded in our mind. And here's why that's important is because when you are in a situation um, that, um, 
that you don't know how to handle, the Spirit of God brings back to your remembrance the things that God has already said. Jesus told his disciples, it's good that I am leaving, so the Comforter will come, and he will lead you to all truth. And what else will he do? He will remind you of what I've said. He will remind you of the word that has been put inside of you, in your heart, in your spirit, in your mind. He's going to bring that back to your remembrance. And if you are in a place where you don't know how to answer somebody, you're in a place where you don't know how to deal with a confrontation. You're in a place where you don't know how to, how to deal with someone who's, who's antagonistic towards you or how to treat somebody because they're doing things on purpose that would frustrate you. Whatever the scenario is, you now have an advocate. You have a comforter living inside of you, and he brings back to your remembrance the things that you have put in there, which is his word over and over again, which is the importance of us diving into his word and putting in our heart so we don't sin against him. And so it's a file of things that he's going to bring up at the right time and remind us of what to do. That repetition embeds it in us, and the Spirit of God pulls that out when we need it, puts it in our mind for us to use. It provides us to give an answer and a way of escape if we're in trouble. Next on your notes, spaced repetition has been proven to help us retain much more information than traditional learning techniques, such as cramming for a test or lengthy classroom sessions. Through spaced repetition... The brain is given the time it needs to embed information or knowledge deep within your long-term memory. You keep ingesting it. You keep hearing it. You keep studying it. You keep reading it. Even though it may seem like a similar principle over and over and over in your life, it is becoming a permanent resident here and here that the Spirit of God will bring out again when you need it. So when you see something repeated over and over, or if God is dealing with you on a subject or some aspect of your life over and over and over again, I'm like, God, I got it. I got it. You obviously don't because he is bringing it back to your remembrance again to say, hey, this right here, let's keep pounding this one home because you're going to need to remember this later on down the line. I'm going to need to bring this truth, this scripture, this revelation back to your mind and heart so you can share it with somebody else. It's got to stay in there. So if you hear some repetition in scripture, be aware. I really got to grab this. God really wants me to see this here and grasp onto it. Verse 2. Paul has said, I'm going to tell you some things. I'm going to repeat them. It's for your good to safeguard your faith. And then he makes a left turn. Watch out for those dogs. Those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now, letter B in your notes, this will be a fun one, the reason for circumcision. Now, if you've been in church any length of time and heard anything about the Old Testament, you've heard this word circumcision. Uh, Many people in this room, when we say, when I say circumcision, may wince or cringe a little bit for, for obvious reasons, right? Like, so, so I'm not going to explain what it is. Y'all understand about the cutting away of the foreskin for male, for male people of, uh, of Israel, right? That's what, you don't understand that? Um, Renee will give you an example, will give you an illustration on the way after service. Just help Mike, help Mike understand what it is. Thank you. Um, so what I'm going to do though, real quick, is I'm going to get really teachy for about six minutes, Seven, okay? 
I want to teach you something, and then we'll bring it home on the back end. So stay with me, okay? So stay with me. Whenever you hear these guys in the New Testament talk about circumcision, it is a way for them to reference the Old Testament law. The reason this is important is, believe it or not, this subject is brought up more than a hundred times in Scripture. A hundred times. You want to talk about repetition? It's a, repeated a hundred times. We have to understand why, what the old law is, what it means, and how it applies to what they're saying here. So let's go back and let's look at the reason that this was implemented for the children of Israel, okay? Uh, Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. I'll read it out loud for us. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. Now let's just stop right there for a second. You imagine God Almighty speaking to you towards the beginning of human history and saying, I'm going to pick you and I'm going to make a covenant with you. No wonder Abram fell face down on the ground. God Almighty is telling him, I'm going to make a promise and the unfailing, unchanging, um, all-powerful, omniscient God is saying, I'm making a promise to you. I think I'd fall down too. He falls on his face, right? You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your new name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I, excuse me, I will be their God. Next line in your notes. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would become the father of a nation. It's Israel. He makes a covenant with him, a promise that he's going to be the father of many nations, which he was, but particular and one that he's being cho- that he's choosing is Israel. This is a wild promise from God Almighty because we just read Abram, who's now Abraham, is 99 years old and so is his wife. And he's telling them, you're going to have a child. And you know what Abraham's wife did when she heard at 99, I'm going to have a child? She went just like this. <laughs> she laughed out loud. And so they tried to do something their own way, and, fathered, and Abraham fathered a child with his, with his wife's handmaiden. And God said, I didn't tell you to do that. I didn't say you were going to do by your own action and own idea have a child. I said you and your wife Sarah are going to have a child. That is the one where my promise resides. Don't take this stuff into your own hands. It's going to cause a whole bunch of problems, which it has. And then now you are going to do exactly what I said. So the whole point is that God makes a covenant with Abraham. Next line in your notes. God chose the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, to, um, and they're referred to as the elect. God chose the nation of Israel, the elect, to have the knowledge of the one true God, Yahweh, and to bring salvation to the world through the, gener- the Jewish lineage, who is who? Jesus. 
I'm not going to get into the whole thing about the elect. We'll do that sometime later. But anytime you hear somebody refer to the elect, he's talking about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God elected them, chose them, the descendants of Abraham, to reveal himself through Yahweh and to send the Savior of the world through. You follow me? Okay, cool. Let's keep reading Genesis 17, 9 through 14, and then we'll see where the circumcision comes in. Then God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants will have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of the foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. From generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to the members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. Any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. Here's what, in a nutshell, is what's happening. Circumcisions, next on your notes, is a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. It's a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. Next on your notes, it was a reminder to every single Israelite that their very existence was the product of a miracle God performed in Abraham and Sarah. It was a reminder to every Israelite that their very existence was the product of a miracle God performed in Abraham and Sarah. The reason that when you hear people in the New Testament, when they look back and they, they're talking about the, the, the idea of circumcision, it means the law, is because it was the first rule. Abraham, here we go. We're starting a covenant. You stay faithful and blameless before me. Circumcise everybody. That's the rule, the circumcision. And it stayed that way. There's a couple other things that Abraham did, but there was nothing else written down except for that rule until the Ten Commandments were given hundreds of years later. Moses gets the Ten Commandments, comes down and sees all the people of Israel who are worshiping another God, not named Yahweh, realizing they are breaking the covenant that God established with them and smashes the Ten Commandments. If you didn't know that, go back and read Exodus. He goes back up the hill again, and God gives them a second copy. If that ain't grace, I don't know what it is. The only thing, your finger wrote on the stones, God, I need another one. Can you give me a second copy? I I broke them. I got mad. So he walks them back down there, and so now they only have one law, which is that circumcision to be honored to God and be honored to God. Then now they have the Ten Commandments, and then Moses and all the leaders of Israel create the law of Moses, which is now 613 laws. So when people refer to circumcision, they're saying all of this, it was the first rule that we had. All of this falls under this heading, this old law, this old way of, of, of doing things that were rules. Now, when I was a kid, I heard all about the law. I heard all about the rules. I heard all about the, about the things you weren't supposed to do. I read Leviticus, which was, whoa, 
wildly challenging for someone who was 10. You know what I mean? To try to, because I wanted to see all the rules. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't even finish the thing. I was like, I don't understand, you know, a lot of this stuff. So here we are, and, I, and here I am, and I'm in this, in, in church. I grew up in church. I'm hearing people preach all the time about the law, and I'm thinking, oh, the law is gone. God, come, Jesus died so the law would be satisfied, and now I'm free to go forward, but I have all these rules to go forward. It was like they took some of these rules back here and said, yes, those are all complete, but we're going to kind of sneak them in the back door over on, on you over here and start piling all these laws and all these rules and all these things on you over here. And so my view of the law was it was these rules that kind of stopped, yeah, but they kind of didn't. We kind of just say them different now, and now they're kind of different set of rules that I got to go follow. And I'm, as I'm... That was the, 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 the fullness and the whole story of what I understood about the law. I thought it was, oh, it's the rules we all have to follow. And since no one can follow all those rules on their own strength, it's just proof that we're terrible. That was my understanding of what the law was. And so as I got into this message, I'm seeing Paul, again, referenced the old law, referenced circumcision, rep, uh, referenced this entirely old system. And I'm thinking, is that really what it means? Is that really what it means? The next line in your notes, circumcision was not salvation. It was just a requirement to be a member of the family of Israel. Even if you were born into the nation of Israel and weren't circumcised, we just saw at the last verse, any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. It wasn't just people who are Israelites, it's people who are obedient Israelites. Why? Because some of them, even after being circumcised and had all the laws and had all the rules and knew what they were supposed to do, still rejected and rejected God anyway. So I'm sitting here going, man, what is the purpose of this old law? What is the purpose of God giving them these rules 400 years after he makes his covenant with Abraham? That's twice as long as the existence of the United States. That's all they had to do for that entire length of time. What is the point of this old law? And then I found this scripture that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Let me back up. Next line in your notes, right before this scripture. The Old Testament law was the first round of written instructions and standards for God's people. Why did he give the law? Let's read this. Galatians 3.19. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show the people their sin. But the law was designed to only last until the coming of the child who was promised. Next line in your notes, plain and simple. The Old Testament law was given to reveal sin. It was given to reveal sin. So think about this real quick. All of the Israelites, all of these people, all they have to do is be circumcised for 400 and some odd years. They are, some of them are intermarrying with the other nations around them who worship false gods, who worship idols, who worship uh, demonic entities. They're worshiping all these things. And so they're beginning to go, they're beginning to adopt some of these ideas. 
They're beginning to compromise on their commitment to Yahweh. I've been circumcised. We're good, right? No, because circumcision wasn't salvation. It was just a sign that you were in the family of God. And now God says for 400 years, y'all have had one rule and y'all have still turned your back on me with one rule. And now I'm going to reveal the 10 commandments and the law of Moses, what the standard is. And they had no idea before then what the standard was. God reveals the standard and then everybody goes, wait a minute, don't covet your neighbor's wife. I've been doing that. Wait a minute. Don't murder. I go and kill people because I want what they want, well, what they have in another, in another land. Wait, don't have any other gods before me. I married someone who we've been worshiping Baal in my house. I've been saying I've been good with, with Yahweh and with Baal. I can't do any of this. Oh, my goodness, I've already failed. And that's the point of the law. Jesus, or God gives the law and says, this is the standard. And everybody goes, none of us have been living up to that. Yes, right. You now know that you have not lived up to the standard by yourself. Out of your own effort, out of your own ideas, out of your own understanding, you have not lived up to the standard. I let you go 400 years with only saying circumcision and just stay faithful to me. And you didn't even do that. You didn't even do the one thing. And now I'm going to peel the curtain back and show you the, 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 the gravity of just how big this law is. So I can show you just how far you've fallen off. I looked at it like I have to do all these things. Oh my gosh, how am I going to remember all of them? God was saying, hey, this is my standard. And you've been running with your own devices for so long that you haven't even been willing to to, to live up to this standard. You haven't known what the standard is. So the law creates the standard and shows everybody how much when I follow my own path where it leads. It has every single person looked at the law. All of us could be living in that time right now and look at the law and look at the standard and look at the Ten Commandments and look at all of the things, that, that all the 613 laws from the law of Moses. We could look at them, and if they were just revealed to us in one shot, we would go, oh, man, not one of my own selfish, self-centered efforts has ever led me to that standard. They've always led me to some other direction. The law of God is given to reveal our sin, to reveal the disgusting, selfish, evil, sinful nature of our heart and what we want to do. That flipped the whole thing around for me. I looked at the law like, how in the world am I going to do all of this? And God's like, you're not going to do all of that. Your heart is jacked up. You are living, you are the product of fallen people who are sinful. You're going to sin. You have sinned your own ways. The wages of sin is death. You see where that scripture now takes on a new light? 
wait a minute, because, because I'm not good enough to do all that, so I might as well just throw my hands up and, and do it. No, you can't do it on your own. It was only given to reveal the sin and the inability for us to follow God's law on our own strength. So when you hear the word circumcision and law, and you hear what Paul is about to say, to say about it, it's going to blow your mind. Because compl- I've read this passage many, many times throughout my life. And so now, let, let, let's, let's go on. Philippians 3, 3 through 11. With that understanding of the old law, what he means by circumcision, look what Paul says about it. Verse 3. For we who worship by the, spirit of the God, uh, by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have a reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I I obeyed the law without fault. Let's pause right here for a second. One rule, circumcision. Ten commandments. That turns into... 613 laws. Follow me? By the time Jesus was born, the Pharisees, these strict, staunch religious leaders, created 20,000 laws. 20,000 laws that no one in the world could ever keep. They were struggling with the first one. They struggled with 10. They were impossible to fill the 613, and now there's 20,000? What hope do these people have? Paul is one of these guys who's fully committed. He is completely and totally invested in this old system. He is completely, not just neck deep, he's fully immersed in this old law, this idea of circumcision and all of these rules and the laws of Moses and these 20,000 laws that the, that the Pharisees have put into place on the children of Israel. This massive burden is on the people. Paul was in the middle of it. He was one of the most celebrated Pharisees that we know of in Scripture. He was there when the first Christian was martyred. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He held the jackets of the other Pharisees so they would have a little bit more arm movement when they stoned him. He was there for it. He was their protege. He was learning exactly how to be the best Pharisee that's out there. You got the leader. You got the guy who is all in on the Pharisee stuff. You got the guy who's all in on the Old Testament law. And now look what he says about the law. He just made his case. I've been circumcised when I was eight days. I followed all the laws. I'm a member of the Pharisees. I'm doing all this stuff. And now look what he says. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else. 
He's talking about that old way of living, that old law. I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through the faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on the law? No, depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection of the dead. Letter C in your notes. Redefined worth. Redefined worth. Keeping the rules to earn salvation is worthless. Keeping the rules to, and keeping the law to earn salvation is worthless. But the next line in your notes is the one that sent me into orbit because faith in Jesus Christ is priceless. Faith in him is priceless. Now, you might be sitting here going, Matt, um, I thought Jesus gave us some instructions. He gave us some commands. He did. He actually repeated nine of the ten commandments in the New Testament as part of his, his direction to follow, his series of commands to follow. We do have things that we are supposed to do and follow from the teachings of Jesus. How is it different from the old law? Is because everybody looked at the old law like I did when I grew up in church. Those are the things I have to do. I have to make sure I get my checklist. I got to make sure that I go through all of these things over and over every single day. And hopefully I'll get enough of them where Jesus will give me a little bit of grace and be like, ah, you got most of them, just go ahead and go in the door. I was looking for a way to earn that salvation. I'm looking for a way to earn that grace. Paul has lived in that system. He has grown up. He has been nurtured in that system. And he turns around after he encounters Christ and says, all of that is worthless. Every time I did self-discipline, every time I did something out of my own strength to try to impress God or think that I was earning brownie points with him, it was all garbage. I wanted to bring a big old garbage pan in here today as an illustration and wad a bunch of paper and throw it in there as to remember. And so, but I did a little bit of digging on this word garbage. This is a sanitized version of what Paul actually said. Because Paul didn't use the word garbage. He didn't actually even use the word in the, in the old, the first English translation, King James Version, he used the word, they translated the word dung. That was his, his word that he used comparing it, comparing Christ to the old law. When he was describing the old law, he actually said this. It is the worst, rankest, vile, animal excrement compared to Christ. That would have been a messy illustration. I picked against it, right? You'd have remembered it, though, wouldn't you? My pastor, he had just crap. He was just in his hands. It was nasty. That is what Paul is saying when he compares every effort of his 
own ability to maintain the law, to earn something with God, he is saying it is the worst, nastiest, vile, worthless animal excrement when I compare it to Jesus. It is nothing. There is no effort that you can make. There is no law that you can keep. There is no effort of, of, of self-fulfillment or self-aggrandizing effort that can ever get us to Jesus. We have talked about this here before. We have unpacked a similar message like this here before, but, the, but Paul started this entire thing saying this, I'm repeating this so your faith becomes strong. It becomes steadfast. It builds a foundation under you so that when you look and you start defaulting to your old way, of going, oh man, I need to keep the rules again. Oh, I need to do this again. Oh, I better act like a Christian here. I better act like God wants me to act here or I'm going to be in trouble because he's got a big stick or he's going to zap me from heaven or something like that, a little lightning bolt or whatever it is that we think. No, that's not how it's running anymore. You can't do it. Your faith in Christ now cleans up all of that stuff that you can't do on your own. The law wasn't given for you to say, I need to live up to this standard. No, he's saying this is the standard that you have never lived up to on your own, and you're not going to be able to, so I'm sending your son who's going to fulfill that law, and by faith in him, all of that perfection is now rested upon you. You are not perfect, but it washes away all of the sin, all of the shortcoming for us through faith in Christ, because we can't fulfill the law on our own. Jesus did it for us. So when we look at what the instructions and the commands that Jesus has given us, the ones that he has given us is love God and love people. The one that he's given us to, to follow him with everything he's got. It's not because we're saying, or we'll follow him with everything that we've got. It's not because he's saying, I'm giving you a list of rules to live up to. What I'm saying is there has to be a new heart inside of you. I am leaving so the Holy Spirit comes. And if you are a believer in Christ, the Spirit of God is living inside of you. And he didn't do that. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And so now you are a new creation, you are a new creature, you now have the spirit and the power of the ever-living God who made a commitment with Abraham living inside of you. You now have the ability, not out of your own merit or own strength, but because you have been made new and the spirit of God is living inside of you, you now have the ability to live as you should. And you're not doing it out of, oh, I better do this or I'm going to get in trouble. I'm looking at it going, I could never have done that. Of course I would do whatever you asked because you have wiped away all of the effort, all of the worthless effort on my end. You've wiped it all clean off the table and you've taken my sin. Uh, There's no more rules to jump through. Of course I will lovingly do whatever you ask. It's not an effort of check checklists and i got to make sure I do the right thing. It is an effort of a transformed heart that is loving our creator and savior so much that of course I would do what he asked. If you're married in this room and, you're, and, you're, and your wife looks at you and says, hey, could you not do that anymore? That thing, you kind of use that tone with me because kind of makes me feel small. Do you look at her and go, I'll talk to you how I want? No. Do you look at that and be like, oh gosh, here's another one of the things she wants me to do again? No. I love her enough to go, 
that tone causes you some kind of harm, I need to change that. Is it because I'm, I'm going to pay the price if I don't do it? Maybe. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Is it because you're going to pay the price because you're not keeping the rules? You're, you're going to show that you, have, you are flawed? <clears throat> no. It's because I love her enough to do that. Does it mean that I'll never, ever use that tone again when I got tired or I, I'm acting stupid one day? No. She will tell you I have done this. But I don't look at her and be like, man, I'm so sorry. You asked me not to do that, and I did it again. I'm sorry. I don't say that to her because I'm trying to check off the list to be like, okay, Matt's a good husband today, and he followed Jesus today. No, it's because I love her. How much more should the love that we have for Almighty God pour out of us and wanting to do right, not because I'm afraid I'm going to get paddled for it or I'm going to get spanked or I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to do my time because I screwed up. No, it's because there is a love for God who did something for me that I could not do on my own. And if all he wanted me to do was love my neighbor and forgive people because I have been loved and forgiven, if all he wants me to do is show grace and reflect the nature of Christ, which is now alive in me, and that's all he wants me to do, I love him enough to do that. The paradigm completely changes when we look at all of the self-effort as the garbage animal excrement that Paul says it is, and we look forward and look at the God who loved us enough, of course I would do whatever you asked. Keeping, next on your notes, keeping and following the commandments of Jesus is not a work of human effort to prove we are worthy of salvation. It is a labor of love to the God who gave everything for us. We have to unlearn. We have to deconstruct the idea that if you're going to go to church and you're going to come over here with all these Christian folks, you better do this, 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 and this. And you need to prove to us by all the... No. It's him. I'm not doing it to prove to you that I can. I have enough discipline to be able to keep myself in check. No, I'm looking at him and going, I would gladly do what you asked me to do because of my love for you. John 14, 23, Jesus says almost this exact thing to us, to his disciples, and it's to us as well. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. When I read that at first, I was like, dang. So I got to do all this stuff to show you I love you? No. My mind was backwards. I was focused on the self-effort of the old law, but now he switched that up and said, no. Respond out of a loving heart for my eternal Savior. That's why I'm doing it. That's why I'm following his lead. That's why I'm following his direction. That's why I'm following his command. That's why I'm giving up all the other stuff. That's why I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. Why is that? Because I'm committed and I'm going to keep the rules. No, because he loved us so much. How could I not give him what he asked for? How could I not give him what he asked for? 
I'm a rule follower by nature. I wish there was 27 things I had to do every day because I'd get up in the morning and I'd get up early and do them all by 9 o'clock and be like, I'm good for the rest of the day. But God didn't create you to be a robot. He gave you a choice and showed you such love so that your heart would change. The checklist is nice and clean for me. The heart is where it gets messy. And God operates in the best in imperfect scenarios. And that messiness of your heart, that you have these affections that are warring inside of us, all of, all of us, every single one of us, that war that goes back and forth, I want to do these things, but I know they're wrong, I wanna, but I love God, and there's this internal struggle in us. That's the messiness where God begins to direct us. I want it to be nice and clean. Yes, I got it all done. Here's my paper teacher. Mm-mm. God says, no, 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 no. What's that heart say? Because I'm one of those guys who kept the rules, but my heart was gross. I wouldn't drink or cuss or smoke or chew or run with those that do, or how the staging went. I, would, I wouldn't do all that. But man, my heart was jealous and envious, and prideful, and arrogant, and condescending, and unloving. When I read and understood why he compared, when he brought in the comparison of the old law to Jesus, I sat there at my notes this week and I just said, I don't even know if I can adequately articulate this, God, because it's so huge and profound to me. Because it changes. I better do right to, God, I want to. You better get this right, boy, or I love you enough. Whatever you want, I'll do. Everything that he used to think was valuable is now nothing in comparison to Jesus. You know why? Last line of your, last line of your notes. When Jesus enters the picture, the value proposition changes. When Jesus enters the picture, everything that you used to think was so valuable changes. Everything that you used to think, I'm going to go get this, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to look like this, I'm going to achieve this. When Jesus comes into the picture, you get a really good comparison of what that stuff is. It is the most nasty, vile, gross, disgusting animal excrement compared to him. I used to hold these things up as like, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look where I'm going. Look what I achieved. And then when Jesus entered the picture, I thought I was holding a trophy. And I had no idea I was holding something that was disgusting and worthless. I had held it so long, it stained my, my hands. It stained my soul, and the only thing that could clear it off was Jesus. What Paul is telling us and what I'm trying to communicate here today is compare Jesus to everything else 
And everything else pales in comparison to my God. And if you've been operating out of this old idea, this old, I got to keep the rules, I got to do all these right things, I'm going to go by this old law type of thing, Paul is saying, don't waste your time. I did. Because it's nothing when Jesus is in the picture. Nothing. Why continue to tell us this over and over? There's nothing that compares to him. Why is he continually telling us, go with Jesus, leave the old behind, leave the old law behind? Why is he constantly telling that over and over to us in the New Testament? It's to safeguard our faith to solidify it so that when he decides to build something on top of it, there is such a depth and strength of foundation and a heart that responds out of love, not out of fear of being beaten because I'm gonna, I've messed up, but out of love because he gave everything. It was so appropriate we did communion today because that blood that was spilled, that body that was broken that Ryan stood here and talked about, is the reason we operate from love and not out of fear of getting in trouble. If that's our paradigm, we are not viewing God correctly, friends. And I spent a large part of my life viewing God like that and changing it to look at in the fullness of his love is more humbling is more awesome, is more mind-blowing than anything I could ever understand doing all the rules. Being the good little boy. He wants you. For God so loved. He so loved the world that he gave. And that love is the example we follow. Unburden your soul, your heart, your mind from the yoke of, I better be good or I'm going to get in trouble. No, stop. And be free to love the God who gave you everything and operate from that point. Everything changes. Everything changes. Is there anything that you have valued so much? Let me rephrase that. Is there anything that we have valued so much in an effort to prove that we're good enough for you, God. We're good enough for other people. We're, I'm doing all these things to get your attention. Is there anything that I have valued so much to try to get God's attention or make myself appear like this good person? That when, I, when Jesus enters the equation, it makes me look at it differently. Is there anything that we have held up by our own self-effort? Is there anything like that that we need to go, 
It's nothing. Is there any garbage we got to throw out? Is there anything in our mind, our perspective, our pursuit that needs to change now that the loving creator is in the middle of the picture?